I'm in hell. There we go. That's our intro. I'm in hell. No, here's what I'm doing. I'm adding this little chunk to the start. Future me, roll the theme music. Welcome to 1-800-RE-SLAPPING. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Rachel Fisher. Brandon King is my co-host. And we're going to get together. We're going to talk about albums that we love and specifically how much they slap. So Brandon, how are you today? I'm not bad. It's our pilot. I'm excited. We've been talking about this for like two months now. I've been planning this for almost a full year and it's finally happening. This is Rachel's grand contingency plan for podcast dominance. I'm going to rule the world one day. First, it's going to be this podcast and it's going to be a network. It's going to be all the podcasts, and it's going to be all of media. NPR, I will find you, and I will make sure you have fun programming for the youth instead of, hello, and welcome to NPR. Uh, anyways, today we're talking for our pilot, probably one of my all-time favorite albums, Green Day's 2004 album, American Idiot. We should probably run down how the system works, um, like we have a system. Yeah, so here's, <laughs> here's, how, here's how the show works, generally speaking. We run down the, uh, the artist background who we're discussing that day, we run down the album background and the art because we think art is very important when it comes to album covers as well as the background of the album itself. We talk about the big hit, whatever was the, you know, probably the most mainstream, most accessible song from the album. And then we end it with our top three songs from said album. Right now, we'll hop into the artist background. Uh, Rachel, do you have anything about Green Day or do you want me to start it off? I mean, it's, your, it's one of your favorite bands. I thought you'd be prepared for that. Uh, so Green Day. I'm pretty sure most of you who were born in some period after 1990, and probably a good chunk of you born before 1990, are aware of Green Day. Uh, they are one of the most successful pop punk groups in the world. Billions of records sold at, I believe, 10 albums to their name. I have this up in front of me. Why? 13. 13, thank you. Uh, <laughs> that's right, I forgot about the trilogy. We'll get into that. Um, 13? Yeah, 13. They just released one this year. We're yeah. not covering that today, though. We're not covering I still haven't listened to it, actually. <laughs> I didn't know it happened. <laughs> it's apparently not great. But um, yes, Green Day, uh, again, incredibly successful pop punk group, uh, founded uh, actually NorCal, NorCal born and raised. Um, Billy Joe Armstrong, Mike Durnt, Trey Cool. Uh, again, I don't even know where to go with that. They're, they've become one of these iconic groups in mainstream rock that have uh, how basically influence their influence has outgrown their own commercial success to a lot of people and American Idiot, for myself specifically and for a lot of other of my generation and slightly younger than my generation this was our a tuning point to Green Day I mean I, a lot of people will say Dookie a lot of people I mean I know there's a handful of people who defend Warning the album before this which we'll get into um, but yeah to a lot of people American Idiot is definitive Green Day. I will say that's probably where I heard my first couple Green Day songs. I, I like them. They're not one of the bands that, for the most part, unless I'm, like, really pissed off, that I'll go pull up a song and be like, yeah, send listen to Green Day. I had a friend um, in high school who was a couple years older than me, and um, we were in a youth group together, and this is a time where she could drive and had a car, and I could not drive, so I relied on her to take me, like, give me rides and take me places, and she would always put on Green Day, and so I've kind of through osmosis and been like, Except for the big hits, like I've been aware of them, but the majority of the songs I know are off of this album, and I didn't know some of them were on this album, which is how integrated I am. 
Um, I will say I'm one of those people who, if I have to pick one, I do kind of prefer Dookie, but that's because I've recently discovered that I love 1990s rock music so much. Didn't realize that, but I was like, yeah, Dookie. Dookie's the ultimate Green Day album for me, but I think American Idiot runs pretty close just because commercially it's the most well-known. It's a political album that happened in the wake of 9-11, so during those times there was a lot of tension, especially with artists. Some of you who are older might remember the debacle with the chicks, as they're now known as, um, in their protest against then-President George W. Bush. And we will be getting not into their debacle, but really just kind of the spirit of post 9-11 America and how a lot of people tend to feel looking back on that time. I will say, Brendan, do you really remember that time period? Because I was looking back and I was like, I don't really remember much before 2005, which is a little sad. See, I have, I have very scattered memories of that time period. Um, I certainly remember a lot of the atmosphere around there. I remember some of the news broadcasts at that time. I learned much later the not all of it, but a, a good chunk of the larger context of those events that as a child, I just thought this was kick-ass rock music. And now as an adult, I realize it is still kick-ass rock music, but it is significantly darker and more depressing than I gave it credit for. Yeah, I mean, I will say, and I think when you're a little kid, you're just a lot more self-centered, so everything's about what is happening directly to me. I will say from 2004, all I remember is that like my house flooded towards the end of the year, and so my whole family had to go stay in a hotel. And I just remember being like, wow, it's weird to be in a hotel for Hanukkah. My dog's in an elevator. This is cool. I didn't really grow up in a family that was very political in that aspect. Like, um, I grew up watching the news every day, and I was encouraged to be informed. But like your stories about other people, both famous and just your friends and your family members and whoever who were encouraged to be politically active from a young age. And I wasn't necessarily discouraged. I just was kind of like, okay, well, you're a little kid. You don't really, you don't need to worry about this. I do have a friend who was born slightly earlier than I was, more at the beginning of the 90s rather than the end. And he was telling um, me and another friend about like, oh, this is what it was like to like go in an airport pre 9-11 where you could go meet up at the gate or if you just wanted to go to Cinnabon and get a cinnamon roll, you could just go and do that. It was fine. And I mean, it's just really startling to me that I don't remember a time like that. I just from the get-go, I just remember what we've been like uh, societally post 9-11, which is just really ramping up um, what we want in security, both um, domestic and global. I really clearly remember the coverage of Hurricane Katrina and the government response from that and how upset people were. We can get into this a little bit more when we talk about the album, because I feel like we're going, we veered a bit away from, from Green Day's background, where yeah. we're going to segue into the album background. I just feel like there are a lot of different factors that now, in my 20s, it's a lot easier to recognize that I, I mean, I didn't expect myself to recognize those back then, because again, I was a little kid, I didn't, I was encouraged to be pillars. I was encouraged to read People Magazine, and that's where I got all my information from, so... At the time, now I get it from other reputable sources. And I will talk about the exact opposite thing, which is actually how I got into Green Day in the first place. <laughs> well, because no, I specifically remember it was my dad. I don't know if he brought it specifically for my brother, but he bought the International Super Hits Greatest Hits collection, which was everything mm -hmm. pre-American Idiot. Actually, Holiday was probably the first time I ever heard a curse word in music. I remember telling my mom about it, and she was very concerned for my brother and I at the time. So, 
So mom, if you are listening, thank you for being concerned for me at a young age. But no, like it, it was one of those albums that just really shaped what I knew rock music as. Because prior to that, it was a lot of, you know, adult contemporary and a lot of, you know, hair metal that my dad was introducing me to. And suddenly here was this, you know, this modern statement that felt topical and highly energized with, you know, these three guys in like, you know, goth and red and black uniforms. And I was like, I don't know who this is, but I need to know more now. It's been a proven method of mine that if I see a picture of a band or an artist and I go either, oh, they're good looking or, oh, they look so cool. I'd love to be friends with them. It's pretty much a guarantee I will go and seek out their music. Again, this band is one of those exceptions, especially back in, in uh, our generation, the height of like pop punk with like My Chemical Romance and older Fallout Boy. If I had been into that, I know for a fact that I was like, Belly Joe is so cool and I gotta look like him and I have to cut my hair and dye it black and wear eyeliner and I've definitely learned how to use that now. I think you're well known more now as a pop punk fan. And I don't know if you do this, but I always categorize them as punk rock because in the 90s with Dookie, pop punk didn't really exist yet. That was more yeah. of, I would say it's, it's a post 9-11 genre, actually, or just about that time. And so for me, I'm like, oh, they're punk rock. Like, that's who they are to me. They're like one of the last, I'm going to sound like such a purist when I say this, and I hate that. So apologies now. Um, one of the last real punk rock bands. They're not, but... Though my first exposure to kind of what they looked like and what their attitude was was, did you see the Simpsons movie? I did, and I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so my first impression of them was basically like, so they're really into the environment, aren't they? Oh, everyone's throwing trash at them, and they're booing them for talking about the environment. Like, the environment's a good thing. We need to not boo about that. We probably need more exposure to that. So I saw them in the Simpsons movie where I get many of my pop culture references from. As did I for a time. But yeah, let's move on to the album background. The album itself, of course, being American Idiot, we're going to be talking about today. There's an ex there's actually a fairly extensive history behind American Idiot. Uh, if for no other reason than Green Day had an entire al other album before this, uh, Cigarettes and Valentines, that was supposed to come out, and then all of their demos got stolen. So they decided to start from scratch, make something entirely different, in, in their words at least. And then, you know, 2003, 2004, peak of the Iraq war begins to happen with George Bush presidency, enters its, um, uh, its new term. Everything begins to change and the band begins to reflect this. Uh, and they make what is in essence a pop punk rock opera with an image from uh, artist designer Chris Bilheimer, the, uh, the iconic sort of bleeding heart in the fist yeah, image. It does look like Bilheimer. Start with that one. Because um, I'm not, by the way, any of this background information I get is straight from the Wikipedia page. And so you want specific sources. I tried to quote as much as I could and give credit. Um, but it's directly from that Wikipedia page. So if there's something specific that really turns in your mind and go, oh, I want to know more about that, there's most likely a clickable citation. Just letting you know. Right. So American Idiot is basically about the growing up of the generation that became adults post 9-11. So this is people who were in their late teens and early to mid 20s in the very beginning of the 2000s. So the beginning of the new millennium. And the album itself, what it tries to do is it tries to draw a casual connection between contemporary American social dysfunction and the ascendancy of George W. Bush helps continue a chain of presidential decisions that we're still feeling today. And I will leave up that one. Um, so part of recording the album was an attempt to expand their 
punk rock sound by they wanted to experiment different styles, which would include new wave, Latin, polka music. It's fun to listen to it and see if you can pick out what the influences are. Um, they also, like Landry mentioned, is rock opera. So there are some various rock operas like The Who's Tommy, David Bowie's The Rise and Paul Ziggy's Stardust, inspired from Mars. Billy Joe Armstrong himself is particularly inspired by The Who's Quadrophenia, and they found more common, found more in common with its power chord mod pop aesthetic. They also listen to cast recordings of Broadway musicals like Rocky Horror Picture Show, Grief, Jesus Christ Superstar, and West Side Story. And I got some contemporary, contemporary music influences like Eminem, Kanye West, Lincoln Park. Um, and a lot of, not a lot of, but some of their motivation behind making this album with a different sound was that the Luther Armstrong considered rock music to be this conservative business is very rigid into how band needs make a single, how they need to make a music video, how they need to tour and things like that. And he felt that different groups like Outkast, for example, had a lot more ambition than was present current at the current time in rock music. Looking at the album artwork, it uses the black, red, and white color scheme. You usually see the most prominently with the white stripes. Um, and they drew inspiration from Chinese communist propaganda art that they saw in art galleries on Melrose Avenue. The actual print itself is a facade of stark print of a heart-shaped hand grenade gripped in a blood-soaked fist that represents the political content. And uh, Chris Bilheimer, who was the, the art director for this album, just to describe the album cover right now, it's an upstretched arm holding a red heart-shaped grenade and there's blood coming out of the bottom of it. We felt that red was one of the most overused colors in graphic design, but the immediate qualities of the color were appropriate for this album. And he explains, I'm sure there's psychological theories of it being the same color of blood and therefore has the powers of life and death. And as a designer, I always feel it's kind of a cop-out, so I never used it before. But there's no way you can use it on this cover. It's a pretty cool album cover, I would say. That's definitely something that I would expect to see. Like, I went to college in the mid-2000s. I, I would bet there's a ton of posters on everyone's dorm rooms that specific cover. I I love the album cover. The mixture of red, white, and black, and I, I'm not nearly as graphic design knowledgeable, I should say, as you are, but I think just from looking at it from a color standpoint, the way that, I think the choice of the black background, the white hand, and the red heart is such a simple, but very prominently balanced image. Like you all will quickly notice in the show that Rachel is a hell of a lot smarter than I am when it comes to dissecting legitimate emotional themes. And I'm more like, kick ass guitar. Hey, and then you'll notice when I do my analysis, it's all in the lyrics because I don't know anything about music and I just go, I like this because it sounds good. Um, so we're pretty balanced, I'd say. <laughs> so that's really it for the cover. I think I just to add on to that, cause you, you hit the point I wanted to get with, I wanted to talk about Bleeding Heart. And so I'm glad you hit that. I think that's very significant, especially because I feel like starting as back as the late 90s, that kind of notion of like, oh, if you care, you're a bleeding heart or you're, you're a liberal, which doesn't necessarily indicate either of those things. I'd also like to say, I like that the, for the actual font, like a bit of a miller, militaristic style. It's yes. not exactly like, if you look at different uh, font types or shows, the one I'm thinking of is HBO's Generation Kill, which is actually talking about that the front of the Iraq war with Operation Desert Storm and the font type is very similar to that. So it could also be invoking like between that and the use of the grenade, um, just militant belief systems. And if you want to combine that with the bleeding heart. I would like that, to 
I would like to touch on just a brief moment about who actually produced this. Uh, this is produced by Green Day once again, but most significantly, at least I want to point out, uh, Rob Cavallo is producing this. Now, for those of you who might not know who Rob Cavallo is, essentially, if you're my age and into the same stuff I into, he basically produced your childhood. I mean, he did Dizzy Up the Girl by Goo Goo Dolls. He worked with Green Day, not just on this, but as well as uh, Warning and Insomnia, actually on Dookie as well. Um, he did The Black Parade by My Chemical Romance, which I'm sure that we will discuss at some point in this series. Um, for me personally, he did a Brand New Eyes by Paramore, which is one of my all-time favorite albums. To me, this guy really got his hands into a lot of where the 2000s were going with rock music. And I think, this, I think a lot of tracks on this album show a lot of those tendencies, you know, very blistering bass lines, you know, drums that feel very in-tuned with guitars instead of matched with rhythm sections you know, uh, vocal productions that rely on a lot on harmonies. And I think he, was, he wasn't on the forefront of those. Those were happening way before him and were happening way after him. I just have to give him kudos for that because I was just not going to stop until I meant, Rob Cavallo, this is the guy if you're talking about 2000s rock music. I know we're stretching this out. Hey, by the way, this is also a Broadway musical. Yes, we, we can totally discuss <laughs> I almost forgot about that. So I don't personally know. Green Day's reactions are like, oh, one of our hit albums that we listen to a lot of musical albums for for inspiration is now becoming musical. I would imagine they're thrilled. Yes. I've personally seen um, on the Tony Awards the performance of the titular track. Um, epilepsy warning. There's a lot of flashing lights. So if you are prone to epilepsy or you are epileptic, Proceed with caution. The, the members of Green Day were heavily involved in the musical. In fact, Billy Joe actually played the role of St. Jimmy for a number of roles. Um, it won two Tonys, as you mentioned, and I would absolutely advocate that anyone out there who has not listened to the musical soundtrack, listen to it. I'm not that into musicals, but yeah, it's good. <laughs> Expert I mean, analysis. I, I just like the fact that it's, you know, like Green Day with choir vocals. I feel like this album could have really benefited from having that in one song, like certain peak sections. I think that would have been cool. I'm very curious to talk about that soon. Are we ready to move on then, or? Yeah, let's go into the hits. So American Idiot has five singles that people know about. I would say I grew up knowing four out of the five, and those singles are American Idiot, the titular track. It is uh, Wake Me Up When September Ends, Boulevard of Broken Dreams, St. Jimmy, and uh, one last one that I'm trying to find. Not St. Jimmy, I'm sorry, Jesus, Suburbia, and Holiday. I, know, I grew up knowing all those except Jesus of Suburbia. It was kind of hard. I don't know if you found it hard, but it was kind of hard for me to like listen through it all because I was like, yeah, 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 I know the song already. I just want to skip now so I can I get mean, to the ones I don't know. They still stand up. Like, in Billy Joe's words, it is his attempt to make his own Bohemian Rhapsody. It's not the most, you know, let's pop it on for a good quick listen. It's really not. I was going to save this for the end, but um, I would say this isn't an album that I think I'd fully listen to frequently. I think it's very good if you're very pissed off about political situations, if you're just pissed off about your current situation, or you feel very alone, you want to feel like, oh, someone else is alone too, and they feel misunderstood. This is not an album I feel like for me to have, was just an interaction of like, I'm so pissed off about this, why don't I go and do something? Kind of felt a little empty towards the end, and I was like, man, I can't imagine listening to this like month after month after month, like I can't imagine doing that, that's so depressing. <laughs> um, it's important, but important things can be depressing and important. Again, it is most is not necessarily the most upbeat album in the world. It is not necessarily the most not positive. Right. It's not even the most, you know, cathartic album in the world. But to me, I can get behind a lot of the melodies, a lot of the production. 
And to me, a lot of the songwriting, even in its most dourest moments, and we'll get into this once we get into our top three, I find that there's a weird kind of undertone of hope to the whole thing that I think the best kind of pop punk and emo and, you know, goth rock and things like that can have where it's like, yes, things suck, but we can get out of this. And at least I kind of found that throughout points with the album that was enough for me. Yeah, like I said, it's not bad. It's just like with any emotion you have, you can't feel it 100% all the time because you will get so burnt out. I'm already pretty burnt out on anger and frustration right now. This did make me feel better in terms of like, it did give me that viewpoint of like, oh, thank God, it's not just me. And it's also someone who, I don't want to say has power, but they're prominent. There's someone that someone else is going to listen to as opposed to me going around being like, can you believe the state of things these days? For context, we are recording um, in the middle of the Black Lives Matter protests. And I think just because especially now in 2020 there's just such a different reaction to it because now we are shown 24 7 news from every single angle we have even if you're not have if you don't have cable tv you're not watching on tv uh you're on social media and it's just a constant 24 7 you can't ever escape cycle of this bad thing's going on in the world and this bad thing's going on in the world and this bad thing's going on right next door and this bad thing's going on in the world and i feel like we were starting to get there in 2004 Yes. But we weren't quite at the same time. It's like, I did substitute teaching for a little bit this year, and I was able to go back to my old elementary school, my old junior high, my old high school. And just even the span of, like, for context, I graduated high school five years ago, and so much has changed. One, they have another building at my high school, which is terrifyingly physical reminder of how time passes. But Everyone does things in Google Classroom now. You're allowed, you have your own laptop at school, whereas, I mean, when I went there, it's like, okay, well, you still get the worksheet. You have to go do this at home. Or we have the desktop computer still. I took a journalism class. I had to type my stories up on a big old desktop computer in the year of our Lord, 2015, when we surely had other things. Um, and I just feel like it's such a different album now. I would love to go back, shout to Billy Joe, of 2004 when this came out, introduce him to Billy Joe of 2020 and be like, hey, you want to talk about the impact of this album together? Because you're going to be in for a shock. If anything, if 2020 Billy Joe went back to 2004 Billy Joe, I'm sure, <laughs> oh my God, I'm sure the discussions would be very, very worth watching. <laughs> I think he would beg to stay in 2004. <laughs> I, I don't know if he would. I really don't know if he would. I don't know. That's a discussion for a different time of the hopelessness of time as it marches on in our civilization. Um, actually, to the songs again. <laughs> yes, let's hop into, uh, we're hopping into American Idiot, right? The title track? Yes. So we start off track one, titular track, American Idiot. Um, there's some music here I want to bring up that's kind of related to this. Um, have I told you about the 9-11 country music theory? Which one? There's like five. The only one I may have ever told you, because I didn't know there was five. <laughs> okay. So, a genre that you usually hear people like, oh, if you could get rid of one genre, it would be what's your least favorite genre, tends to be country, because a lot of the country music that people have heard is modern country music. Now, older country music, which is stuff from the 30s through about, I'd say the 70s, maybe a little bit into the 80s, um, was about... Uh, societal change and the rights of the people and anti-racism um 
And usually it's when you say country, older country, you think of, oh, Johnny Cash, maybe Pete Seeger, maybe um, Bill Oaks, someone like that, who they were very political people who just commented on what was going on around them and how wrong things were. Because this was, you know, civil rights period. Um, and then when you think of country, now if you think of modern country, it's a lot of the like, she thinks my tractor sexy. If you look in the mainstream, so yes, but I will continue to debate that point, but go on. Well, yeah, I'm talking specifically about mainstream modern country. There are still a lot of modern country artists that are more like the old school ones, but I'm not talking about specifically for this theory. This is Isabel Forever. Um, 9-11 country music theory, and this ties into what we were talking about with the chicks earlier, which is patriotism and jingoism about America really ramped up about this time, um, partially as a reaction to saying, well, we had a terrorist attack at the Twin Towers in New York City, which is one of those fundamental American cities. It's an icon. If you think of America, New York is what you think, and you think specifically of Manhattan. Um, so everybody's very ramped up about, oh, we got to spend a lot of economy. we got to be nice to our neighbor. we got to promote how great America is. And, of course, this affects different media industries, especially the music industry. And so country music took a really big turn at this point where it's very – pro-America, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but you can go about it in a way that's very alienating. And one of the people I'm thinking of specifically is Toby Keith. That is the song. I will go bring up the lyrics to this and read you some of that. Hey, Uncle Sam, put your name at the top of his list. And the Statue of Liberty started shaking her fist. And the eagle will fly and it's going to be hell. You hear Mother Freedom start ringing her bell. It feels like the whole wide world is raining down on you. Oh, brought to you courtesy of the red, white, and blue. Um, other lyrics like the bridge is, and you'll be sorry that you missed the U.S. of A. We'll put a boot in your ass. It's the American way. So you can get a nice, nice view of like the the type of country music that was coming around this time. And this song I'm sure is very popular because of what we talked about with those societal. And that song in particular, I feel like really led to with modern country, say the degradation of modern country. Because if you turn on a country station now. Nine times out of ten, you're going to get like a She Thinks My Tracker Sexy type song, which doesn't... It's like a guy from L.A. who put a twang and just went on, on dictionary.com and put in synonyms for country. So that was kind of the state of mind where we were at during this time period of music. So when songs like this came out, like American Idiot, where they have... Did I call any specific lyrics? The lyrics of American Idiot, one of them in particular I was thinking of was they include the line, Redneck Agenda. It can kind of symbolize that us versus them, which is the us being like people who are anti-war, who are saying, no, this is not the right way to react to people. This is not what you need to do versus the them, which is the people who are pro us going into the Iraq war and saying, yes, we need to get revenge for what happened in America. This is the best way to do it, or at least the most cathartic. Um, and it also begins the, talking about the ideas of this toxic masculinity, which is that being tough, generally being homophobic and telling misogyny, which you can see the misogyny a little bit more when we get to the what's her name songs. You can see the homophobia. I'm aware of Billy Joe Armstrong is bisexual and so he's le I'm joking when I say legally allowed, but he's allowed to say things like Fag in America, which he felt even up to when I graduated high school in 2015. You it was still okay to say that things you thought were bad were gay. And that's really still pushing that toxic masculinity of, oh if a man touches another man in any way, or if he compliments him, or he does something that a man would do to a woman, he's gay. And these lyrics also start the normalization of violence that we saw during this period, 
and this general switch in time in popular culture you hear something on the news or you hear something from instagram or facebook or twitter or wherever you get your information from or whoever you follow to get that information from where you just go oh well they said it so it must be true um and this song american idiot in particular specifically starts off talking about that but those are the main themes of it um he's suburbia our main character doesn't want to be an american idiot he does not want to be like the people who are taking these thoughts in the media, accepting them without thinking about it, who are enabling the ideals of toxic masculinity and who are the them in the us versus them. Have you seen those ideas permeate into rock since? I mean, I feel like, but a sunset, depending on what time period that you look at music, like, I didn't hear about feminist ideals in music until I was about 14 or 15, and that's because I checked out Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana, and I got interested in the background of the name, because I was like, that's a cool name. That was the only time, like, I'd heard anyone in music at that point. And again, I wasn't outwardly being like, well, the feminist rock bands. But that was the only time where I heard a band explicitly say, we're a feminist, we support equality between sexes and genders. And previously, I will say, I listened to a lot of 60s and 70s classic rock music. It wasn't really the thing, like, back in that in the 60s and 70s, if you were a feminist or if you were promoting equality based on race or religion or creed or sex or gender or anything you want to pick with those categories. We don't believe in that. It's un-American. Even though everyone's equal in our melting pot of a country, if you're not exactly like me, so it's really been in the works for a while. I feel like, and we can talk again about how media contributes to this. Um, I think with media, especially with 24-hour news and the events of the internet and social media and now the news cycles that we're stuck in, it's really pushed those ideals a lot more and it's reaching more people. Whereas, and I was not alive in the 1960s, so I can't confirm or deny this, but I feel like back in Back then, it was more, oh yeah, there's my crazy neighbor who sometimes plays ghosts in the woods with his pointy hat and his sheets. Right. We don't really know what his deal is. But that's what it was like more, was you couldn't, if you wanted to go around, Joe Dipshit wants to go around and say, man, I really hate how these types of people are running our country. He had a very limited audience. I hope that answered that. <laughs> <laughs> I realize I kind of left the question. Um, This is what happened when you're raised specifically on the history channel and you really enjoy studying people and societies and um you like being treated as a person well said yay (laughs) shall we we move on to our top three then um so i'm gonna start from number three to number one and i do have a special mention number three is part of what i like to call the what's her name medley I would, I wish to God, if I could change one thing musically about this album, and I don't know much, I wish every single song, with the exception of the ending track, that's about what's her name, just led into each other, like one right after the other, because that would be such a good medley. Like that, how they have in Homecoming, where there's separate sections in the song, I would have loved that for this. Um, so this is the what's her name medley is what I'm calling it. Um, I, as my notes say, let me find it. Kathleen is here! Yay, Kathleen! Um, woman who I would love to be my mother, Kathleen Hanna, is on Letterbox in this this album. That's part of the medley. So my number three is my What's Her Name medley, which is Extraordinary Girl, Letterbomb, She's a Rebel. I love Kathleen. (laughs) Are you including What's Her Name in the What's Her Name medley? That's my special mention because I think out of those songs, 
it doesn't quite follow that theme because it's really it's what's her name because uh i'm gonna call him jimmy his name is not jimmy jesus of suburbia is basically like oh yeah what happened to that girl when he goes back to the suburban town and he decides to get a, a nine-to-five cubicle job and he decides i'm done being a punk rock revolutionary i'm just being a normal boring kid what's her name is lyrically the content is about her it's not really about her it's him reflecting more on his previous life and he's like oh yeah i guess this this girl's part of it i wish i could forget her but i don't remember her name but she still haunts me so i don't count that in the what's her name medley because it's not really about her i i would like to point out i don't like what's her name at i mentioned this before i don't love it as a standalone single however i like it as a coda to the album for the character of you know, for the characters of the album, because I like that notion of ending the album on that notion of, you know, this character has grown up, they've forgotten a lot of their connections, but they only remember as sort of like, you know, a distant sort of past memory. And at least for me, that kind of impacted me a lot over the years when I've listened to that. But I also completely understand the notion that this is a character who is thinking of this other character as basically the idealized version of themselves, which they are clearly not, and they have not been for a long time, maybe never. Yeah, and that's the problem that you see. And I wouldn't necessarily put this under a theme of misogyny because it's not outright like to me. I mean, Jesus Suburbia is very upset the relationship ended. He wants to go find her, even though he can't remember much about her. But he's never like, he's like, man, I really wish my girlfriend was with me. My life is so sad. But he's never like, it's her fault. I'm like this. I'm going to go with my runner up. I'm going Jesus with Suburbia, the entire thing. I don't love every part. Dearly Beloved sticks out to me a lot just because of, I think the sort of, you know, the glockenspiel elements fit weirdly well in it. I like the way it sort of acts as meditative piece between I Don't Care and Tales of Broken Home. Um, and the whole thing, it is not Green Day's Bohemian Rhapsody by a long shot, but it no. does work, but it does work musically in being very creative and being very energetic in setting the stage for the character of Jesus of Suburbia very, very well. Maybe it's a bit too long. Maybe not every section works. I'll give you that. But I really, really appreciate it for what it is. My number two is actually Letterbomb, which is so... I Okay, I was listening to this literally on the car ride back to record this, and I was screaming along the entire way mm-hmm. because, again, the lyrics are incredibly poignant. Kathleen Hanna's intro is great. It's too damn short if you ask me. I love... I won't say it necessarily leads in from She's a Rebel that great. It does if you listen to it in the context of the album. I'll completely admit that. But I will just skip straight forward to Letterbomb and just have a great time for three minutes. It is a solid as hell rock tune. It is a solid as hell punk tune. Um, and yeah, my number one, this is partly for nostalgia reasons, but it's also because I truly, truly love the song, is Holiday. Holiday, to me, okay. is to me it is a staple of modern classic rock. It has everything That's I so want. Good. The bass breakdown alone is perfectly mixed. It, and I encourage you out there, listen to the vocals only portion of it. Because again, I mentioned Rob Caballo's notion for mixing vocal harmonies at the start of this. Holiday to me is one of the prime underrated examples of that. And again, leading into Boulevard of Broken Dreams, it is a really great transitioning point of just, you know, numb apathy and things like that. Billy is screaming his lungs out on it. I heard, This is a side note. I remember trying so hard when I was a kid to nail that last holiday note so many times, and I can kind of do it now, and I'm kind of proud of it. But again, so that's my top three. Uh, Jesus of Suburbia, the whole thing, um, Letter Bomb, and Holiday. I want to say, yeah, Holiday's very good. I want to say I'm pointing out 
One thing that's technical about that that I like, and one thing I wanted, to, I wish they would have added to Letter Bomb, but you made me think about this now. I really, I don't know why, whenever I listen to this song, I always picture the part where Billy Joe is representing California's town for, like, he has some sort of, like, walkie-talkie-like thing attached to his guitar, and he pulls it up, and that's where the microphone comes from, and I don't think that exists, but I want it to exist, because that's what it sounds like, and it sounds so good. I really enjoy that part. Um, I want to say Flutter Bomb, what I now really wish, because Kathleen Hanna, if you don't know anything about her, uh, she did start out with spoken word which is, it's like, if you don't know what spoken word is, it feels like very, sometimes awkward rapping, but <laughs> acapella. It's, spoken word is definitely not for everyone, but she started off doing that, and I think that would have really helped make Little Bomb feel great, although I'm wondering if it was just like Kathleen Hannah is too famous and we can't afford to pay her for more time, um, is if all throughout she was reading the letter, the, the letter bomb, and that was in the back. I like that. I like that a lot, actually. I think that would have been, because she, she said spoken words, so that would have been like an homage to that. And I think it would have had even more of an emotional impact if you could still kind of hear snippets of what Jesus Suburbia is reading. Because, I mean, every time you watch a TV show or a movie and someone has a note, usually either you hear the voiceover of the person who wrote the note of the letter or you hear the person who it's addressed who is reading it, so you actually get to see what it says. I would have loved that. I think that would have made this really, really strong and used Kathleen's talents, and it would have been more Kathleen Hannah, and I would have bumped that song up specifically to two. And, uh, and alas. Part of that on Letterbomb that I think you mentioned the spoken word thing, I think Rob Cavallo and the band might have encouraged her to utilize some of that because if you listen to that intro, and I know we're talking more about Kathleen Hanna's small part than the actual song. I don't, I don't care. Kathleen's great. I love her. <laughs> right. But I, I mean, it's that thing where you hear her and she almost sounds almost like mockingly on it. Just like, oh, oh she is. She is. She's really good at doing that. Like, she did this a lot with her first original big band, Bikini Kill, which we will probably cover at some I'm point. I'm sure we will. Good, I love the kitty kill. Um, because she had that influence from spoken word, she was also very good at utilizing that image of, oh, if you're a white girl, you're a feminist, you're, you're whiny, and you do this, and you do that, all, all the same type of feminist stuff. And so with this, she does a very good, like, sing-song, mocking voice that you usually kind of hear in characters that are little kids specifically little girls and she really brings out she does such a good job of that and if you listen to some of her stuff with Julie Ruin or Bikini Kill or probably with Latigra I haven't listened too much to Latigra it's her second big band um, she really utilizes that you hear it mostly in Bikini Kill stuff so I'm really glad that like about 10 years later she brought it back because it just works because you basically hear with what's her name like oh she's so perfect she's punk rock and she's an anarchist and she's so cool and I love her I love her. I think she's the best character in this album just because she admits she's flawed. Right. And she admits, like, you, me being with you, as in Jesus Suburbia, is not good. I need to not be with you so I can make my life better, so I can be better and help other people and still be part of this cause. I think she's one of the most well-run-out characters in this album. Um, and I just like this other dimension of, like, well, she's definitely not perfect because she's a human being, but I really think the whiny sing-song that Kathleen Hanna does really drives it home. Um, I don't know if you heard this. I've heard this of, like, oh, the older the get, more conservative you get. And I tend to find in my experience,
experiences and connecting with people. That doesn't really happen. What that really is is the more money you get, the more conservative you get. And it's important to note that usually people who are liberal or leftist or just generally are not conservative, they tend in a lot of situations to not be those kind of people who get access to that wealth, who get to move up and become conservative. They die. And so this you can almost imagine of like, this isn't saying, okay, well, if you go sit in your cube nine hours a day and you do your job and you go and push buttons and then you come home and have dinner and then go to sleep and, go, and that's what you leave your life around, you're going to be okay. Do we have any quick final thoughts just on American Idiot as a whole? This is a good album and I think it's a good start if you want to get your friends and your family members and your colleagues, whoever's important to you in your life to start really thinking about their role in society and how things have been going. And I think we're seeing that more now, but this is a good way to get people into it because music is how you get people into ideas and then they can explore it through less catchy means like books. For me, I, again, I, I recognize that there is more intelligent, more thought provoking, more musically interesting, more you know, in-depth and emotional soul searching punk music out there that I had discovered in the last number of years and that I'm grateful to have discovered. For me though, again, partly as a child of that era, partly because Green Day has had such a profound effect on myself as a musician and as a fan of music, because of that, American Idiot will always remain a classic in my eyes. Um, the songs in it are just too well made in my eyes to not have that kind of critical eye that I have for it, especially in just the last you know, 45 minutes. I have gathered a lot of subtext that maybe Billy Joel did was able to foresee, maybe that he wasn't able to foresee. You know, I, I do find it interesting what 2020 Billy Joe Armstrong would think with a deep dive constru construction about this, because in their discography, it is a very unique entry. It is, you know, it's not the prime rock opera that 21st Century Breakdown was. It's not the full-blown, you know, punk that Dookie was. It is very distinct and very of its time, and I think it has evolved as well as something from that era and that sensibility can. Mm -hmm. That's a very good snapshot of liberal and leftist and whatever you want to call it. Not right-wing viewpoint, but it's not the end-all be-all because it's just from three specific dudes who'd already had a fair amount of positive and negative, I guess, notoriety. Um, it's not, it might not have been the opinion of the everyday person, but I think it's a good snapshot of, oh, it wasn't just all like this. There's a little bit about this. Both agree that this album slaps, right? This album slaps. I would say, how many slaps out of five would you give this album? I didn't know we were doing a rating, and I'm excited. Um, <laughs> you can't ask me to grade this objectively. This is a five. It's not perfect. I, I know Green Day has done better in their discography. I know that, you know, it does have its issues. It does not run incredibly as cohesive as maybe it did when I was a kid. But all of it is, none of it is boring to me. All of it is worth something. All of it is worth a picture of something at that time or even foreshadowing something later. And the music itself is just so good and so well mixed and so interesting to me as a musician. I, I can't give it, I have to give it a five. I know it's not a five, but I have to. Okay, I'd say a three and a half, just because like I say, it's a good starter to get into these concepts, but there are times, and I feel like maybe I'm biased in that, I've been into some of these concepts and learning about the stuff more than at least like six months, um, which if, you, if you're just starting, that's fine, that's good. Best time, the second best time to start is now, 
first best time was before. Um, but I feel like just, and I don't even know, again, I don't remember culturally or socially what it was like, so I don't know if they could have done more, but I, it feels very basic of like, oh, this is why this is bad. I feel like one of the benefits of that is it lets you form your own opinion when you go and reach out for more information. But then there's also a part of me that's now been like, okay, well, I've been reading stuff about this and I've been learning about this for a while now. This still feels very basic of like, this is bad. What they're doing is bad. and We should stop it, but we're depressed. Like, it can come off like that at times. Um, which, again, who knows what culturally what it was like for them specifically when they're like, okay, well, maybe we don't want to completely piss off roughly 50% of this country that needs to buy tickets to our concert and our merch and our CDs. Um, you know, business is business. So I'd say it's a, it's a very good primer. And if you want to start getting into punk rock and then work your way back to more of what we consider classical punk rock, it's good to start there. But this should not be your stopping point. I 1,000% I agree with that. Yeah, this should not be where you're like, okay, I did my work. No, like, I retweeted something. <laughs> I think that is a darn good note to leave off on. Um, oh, wait. I have a different note to leave off on because oh. I mentioned this earlier. So if you would like to learn more about the Iraq war and generally more the governmental side of things, I would like to recommend a podcast called Blowback. And Blowback, let me see if I can get the description up. Uh, the description is a podcast about the Iraq war. So short, to the point. Um, it goes into detail from the very beginning. So what life was like in Iraq previous to the Iraq war. Um, I think it's a very good entertaining uh, podcast on the history of the Iraq war. There's some funny bits in it because it's run by two comedians. Um, if you want to learn more about that, you can find it where you listen to your podcast. And if you want to learn more about history in general, which sometimes does cover the Iraq war, I know they have an episode on this, please listen to history podcast, The Dollop which is also on YouTube, as well as where you get your podcast, which looks at American history. It's also done by comedians, so if you like humor and you're learning like I do, uh, you actually get two things out of it, besides learning. I'm well, sorry, three things. You also get anger. We'll put the um, so Joel has episodes in Iraq War. We'll put the links in the description. Thanks again for listening to our pilot episode of 1-800-Are-You-Slapping? My name is Rachel Fisher. And I'm Brandon King.